Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Economist. From The Economist in London, this is Money Talks, a weekly programme about news in the worlds of business, finance and economics. I'm Edward McBride, the finance editor. Every time China announces new growth figures, sceptics question the accuracy of the data. On this week's show, I'll be discussing a new study that sheds some light on Chinese statistics with John O'Sullivan, our economics editor. We'll also be looking at the asset management industry, which is facing a leaner future. With me to talk about that is Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist. Let's start with you, John. The paper I mentioned doesn't actually look at growth statistics, right? It it looks at demographic statistics to try and work out how accurate Chinese government data is. So the study is is actually of of about a thousand local officials studied by uh, economists at Duke University and the University of Colorado. And they find that those officials who succeeded at checking local population growth, by which we mean imposing the China's one-child policy successfully, had a better chance of getting promoted than those that didn't. And then when the economists checked the relationship using census data rather than the statistics produced by the local officials themselves, they found that this relationship disappeared. So the suggestion here is that Chinese officials get promoted by essentially fiddling their statistics to make themselves look better. It doesn't take a great leap of imagination to imagine if that's true for population statistics, it may also be true for the local GDP statistics, which are aggregated up to produce the national figure that's released very shortly after the quarter ends. Right. So what was happening was the officials looked like they were getting promoted because they were enforcing the one-child policy. In practice, if you look at this other data set, if you check their report of how many children there were in their district against this other data set, you find that they were just fiddling the numbers. And so they weren't getting promoted for enforcing the one-child policy. They were getting promoted for reporting what the officials above them wanted to hear. And presumably that applies for GDP too. Yes, I mean, we're obviously making an inference from this. But yes, the findings of this paper are that uh, there's no relationship between promotion and local population growth on the census statistics. But there is a relationship between promotion and local population growth on the the statistics that the officials themselves produce, which suggests that they are filling the statistics in order to to promote their own careers. I mean, this seems particularly interesting because China's growth target has obviously been a subject to some speculation and controversy. The, The government has been reducing it. But even so, it's still higher than most people think growth actually is, or at least outside China, there's a great deal of suspicion that growth is exaggerated. Do you think that this evidence sort of sways your view of of how fast China is actually growing? Well, it's certainly the first real sort of insight into the extent to which the statistics may be fiddled. And it doesn't even have to be fiddling. I think one of the concerns about the growth target is that it gives incentives 
for local officials to engage in projects and investment projects that bump up local GDP, but actually do so at a large cost, either because they build up a lot of debt, often off balance sheet debt, or because you build a project that doesn't really have any great long term economic benefit, but it certainly gives a short term bump to GDP stats. So the problem is, is not just with fiddling, I think it's the general issue of having a target incentivizes officials to meet that target, irrespective of whether it's a sensible thing to do or not. And, and what difference does it make that the target is, has been coming down? So it, it's now 65 to 7%. The significance of that is the first time the target has not been a point target, but it's been a range. So in principle, that means you can trade off the quantity of growth against other concerns that would feed into the quality of growth. So if you thought opening this particular factory was going to have an impact on how clean the local air was, you could sort of dial back your investment to reach the lower bound of that GDP figures. But it's still a fairly narrow range, first of all, six and a half to seven. So there isn't a great deal of room for manoeuvre for officials. And secondly, it's actually still quite a high rate, which most private sector forecasters think the economy at best could grow at six-ish, certainly not six and a half to seven. So it feels like there's still a very strong incentive there to either to fiddle the figures or to engage in some of these rather silly projects like you know, five lane highways to nowhere. Right. So more grist to the mill of those analysts and investors who are always questioning the accuracy of the Chinese GDP data. Phil, let's turn to you now. The asset management industry, it's always been a great business for the managers themselves, but hasn't done quite so well for their clients. Absolutely. The old story about the man in the 30s being shown the yachts in the harbour of New York saying there's a senior partner's yacht, there's a chief executive's yacht, and asking the naive question, where are the customer's yachts, still applies. And we're used to industries where low-cost competitors come in and destroy business models. Amazon with book retailers, music streaming services with um, CD producers. Uh, And the bizarre thing about asset management is a low-cost Technology was introduced 40 years ago, the index fund, and it still has only conquered about a quarter of the industry. And there are signs, however, that things are changing at a a slightly greater pace. The problem with asset managers is they don't do what it says on the tin. They do not beat the index. So the figures out for last year showing that 82% of large cap funds in the US don't beat the S&P 500 91% of emerging market funds don't beat the emerging market index. 95% of funds investing in government bonds underperform the index. So why are you giving your money to these people who charge you more? I mean, those are astonishingly bad figures, right? You might have thought that on average, you know, half would beat the index and half wouldn't. But it's not even that. I mean, it's money for old rope, in effect. It is money for old hope, I think, is perhaps the thing. I think the reason that people do buy these funds is that they still have that belief that beating the market is best and that buying an index fund is settling for average, like buying the cheapest parachute. There's also the problem of the distribution of funds. So people don't go out and buy financial products, often long-term plans, insurance, they have to be sold them. And if you sell uh, people a good, you have to have some incentive system for the salesman. It's easy to reward salesmen via an active fund because there are some fees to give away. With a low-cost index fund, uh, which might be charging you know, 10 basis points a year, a tenth of a percentage point, there's nothing to reward the salesman with. So the industry has been built up on goods being sold and customers uh, have paid the penalty for that. 
That is changing under regulation in both the UK and the US. Also, the big pension funds are starting to shift away from using dozens and dozens of managers and shrinking it all down to a few, and many of them are managing it in-house. So that's very bad news for the soft middle of the industry, which basically did little more than vaguely track the index and try and outperform a bit, but fail. Uh, And it's going to probably mean more of a divide between those people who take really big bets and who can display some evidence of beating the market over the long term and a much bigger passive sector. To continue the yacht analogy, it's kind of the perfect storm for for the asset management industry, isn't it? I mean, they're facing, on the one hand, the growth of passive funds, as you said. So that's individual investors who are beginning to cotton on to what's been going on. Then you have institutional investors, as you also mentioned, who are are using fewer and fewer outside managers, doing more in-house. Then on top of that, you've got falling markets, right? And falling markets add an extra dimension because if you earn a percentage of the assets you're managing, if if those assets fall in value, so do your fees. Yes, that's true. And, And for the clients, of course, even if you assume that markets don't fall all the time, of course, they've rebounded a bit over the last uh, month. Long-term returns will be lower. And I think that's rational, given that the yield on treasury bonds, the risk-free asset is low. Then a active management fee of 1% to 2% takes a lot bigger chunk out of your gross returns as a client than it did when markets were rising 10 to 20% back in the 1990s. So suddenly, people who were sort of pretty blasé about paying an active manager 15 years ago are realising how much of their returns are being given away to the people who look after their money. And then there's also another element in terms of the intensifying competition, right? I mean, you mentioned uh, the cheap alternative in terms of index funds, but there's also a a cheap alternative, even if you want someone to actively give you advice, robo-advisors, right? Computer programs that once they've got a little bit of information about your financial circumstances can make some recommendations in terms of what you should invest in. How much of an impact are they having? They are having a bit of an impact. They're going to appeal more to the upper end of the scale, I think, because they'll charge a flat fee on your savings, which means you need a bigger sum to make it worthwhile. But the important thing there is they're all about asset allocation. So if you go to a robo-advisor, you'll be told to have, say, 60% equities, 20% bonds, 20% property, something like that, all in passively managed exchange trade funds, ETFs, um, no need for active management there, no need to buy a actively managed asset allocation fund either. So in the long run, that will also eat away at the industry. And we're shifting away from this rewarding the advisor by the fund manager, which of course creates conflict of interest with that of the client, to rewarding the advisor through a flat fee from the client, which means the two interests are allied. And that's much better regulated to push people that way. And that's a very good thing. So does this mean that the high ups within the asset management industry can forget owning a nice yacht? What's the future for them? I think it'll be quite a while still yet before we eliminate the yacht tendency. There are plenty of hedge fund and private equity managers doing very nicely. Thank you very much. But it does mean that the sort of middling, barely competent managers will have to make do with a rowing boat rather than something more fancy. Sounds rough. Thank you very much, Philip. That's all we have time for this week. Thank you also to John. Don't forget, if you want to join in the conversation, you can tweet us at econbizfin and at econeconomics. And you can find our articles on Chinese statistics and the asset management industry in the forthcoming print edition of The Economist and on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. 
flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.